Okay, so here's the title of the message. I think we have it up on the screen, and that is, How Does God Work All Things Out for the Good? And the reason why we are entitling the message such, How God Works All Things Out for the Good, is because of the incredible promise that we just read, which is, we know all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And partly behind why we're asking this question about how he does work all things for the good is the reality that not all things are good. Hey, listen, death is not good. Leukemia is not good. Injustice is not good. Racism is not good. Anti-Semitism is not good. I mean, and you may have just recently come off some injustice in your own life or some crazy interpersonal relationship dynamic that has been incredibly painful and... You know, you hear this, that God works all things out for the good, and you're having a difficult time processing it because what you've recently experienced is not good, right? I mean, we just have to underscore this reality. Not all things are good. So the question becomes, how does God work all things for the good? Here's the short answer. It's not dependent on us, which is really good news. His plan to work all things out for the good, and of course it raises the question, what is good? We'll talk about it. The good news is it's not dependent on us. Years ago, author Ray Bradbury wrote a short story entitled Sound of Thunder, and it's about this illegal time machine that takes you back in time. So it's like you get on this illegal time machine, you could go back and witness the resurrection or witness the the rise of Rome, or the fall of Rome, or whatever you want to view in history. But according to this short story, you, this time machine floats above the earth six inches, and the instruction is, don't touch, don't touch anything. So you can go back in history, but you're not to touch anything. Like, don't touch a blade, a flower, a tree. It's an anti-gravity metal, he writes, and its purpose is to keep you from touching this world of the past in any way. Well, the main character is named Eccles. And he says, well, that's not really clear. I don't understand why I can't touch anything. And it's explained, well, say we accidentally kill one mouse here. That means all the future families of this one particular mouse are destroyed, right? Right, he says. And then all, all the families of the families of the families of that one mouse with a, with a stamp of your foot, you annihilate first one, then a dozen, then a thousand, a million, a billion possible mice. So, so they're dead, says Eccles. So what? So what, Travis Nortz? What about the foxes that will need those mice to survive? For one of ten mice, a fox dies. For one of ten foxes, a lion starves. For one of a lion, all manner of insects and vultures and infant a billion of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction. And then it said, the stomp of your foot on one mouse could start an earthquake. I mean, the effects of which could shake our world and destinies down through time to the very foundations with the death of that one caveman. A billion others yet unborn are throttled in the womb. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Perhaps Europe is forever a dark forest and only Asia waxes healthy and teeming. Hey, step on a mouse. You crush the pyramids. Step on a mouse and you leave your, your print like a Grand Canyon across eternity. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington may not cross the Delaware. 
The band U2 may not exist. I had to throw that in. I'm so sorry. I mean, it's like, this is serious. Okay, there might not ever be a United States at all. So be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off it. I see, Eccles says. Then it wouldn't pay to even touch the grass. And he says, correct. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you're thinking to yourself after hearing that story, recognizing that decisions have consequences, And that you really don't need this parable of a story about a time machine to take you back in history that if you were to step on a blade of grass, that it could have potentially radical ramifications to recognize that decisions in all of our lives do have consequences, pro and con. Would you agree with me on that, right? And and we're all probably thinking to ourselves, oh my goodness gracious, in my life, I've not only stepped on grass. I've done other things with grass. Sorry. Anyways, you know, I've just like, I've made some poor decisions and decisions have consequences and that is a reality. But here's the thing. The promise that we just read, that we're going to unpack is given to, listen, the son and daughter of the heavenly father who is actually behind the scenes working with our good decisions and we are to make good decisions in life. We're to make the most wise godly decisions we possibly can to his glory. Can I hear an amen to that? But let me tell you something. Our father is so wonderful and his power is so great that he works despite our good decisions. Because here's the reality. None of us have the ability and the wisdom to make all the right decisions all the time to ensure all things work for the good. But our Heavenly Father is working behind the scenes in ways that He will work with our decisions, and we are to make good ones, and even despite the good ones, for His highest good to His glory and our highest good to His glory. Look, I have a friend, Greg Laurie, who tells a story. He used to take his eldest son to shop at, the, at, the, uh, at, at a toy store, and so it started out like this, like, Christopher, do you want to go get, you know, get a toy at this toy store? And of course, Christopher's like, for sure. And they would go shopping. And, and Christopher would purchase or pick, excuse me, toys from the bottom shelf. Like he's just, you know, in the whole world, kind of on the bottom shelf. And his dad was trying to get him interested in the upper shelf toys, like the more expensive ones, you know, partly because I think, you know, Greg was going to enjoy him, you know, right? And and so the first couple of times, Christopher is picking from the lower shelves. What does Greg do? He buys another toy. He buys an upper shelf toy. They go home. They have a fantastic time. This happens a few times. And then Greg says, hey, Christopher, you want to go to the toy store and pick a toy? And Christopher says, yeah, Dad. And you choose. You choose, Dad, because you know what's best, right? We have a great father who knows what the upper shelf good is. I mean, we can have a tendency, kind of stretch this little illustration out, to be playing and focused on lower shelf goods. There's a lot of goods in life. But then there's really, really good stuff. And our Heavenly Father knows what that is. In fact, one of the questions we need to ask is, you know, Paul is writing, we know all things work for the good. We know it. Hey, listen, I just know it. Emphatic, absolutely confident. Yeah, the question is, What is the good that is being worked out? Is it lower shelf good? Is it like, you know, um, I don't know, I get a new car, that's good. 
Or is it that he's shaping my life more like Jesus Christ? Well, that is really, really good. I mean, what is the good? We're going to talk about that. That is very, very important. So really, we're going to pursue three questions. One is, how does God work it all for the good? How do we know he's working it out for the good? That's an important one. And what is the good that he is working up? I'm going to put up the first point, you guys, and I want you to turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 1. We're going to jump around just a little bit. Here's point number one. How do we know that all things work for the good? Point number one, because the plan of the Heavenly Father, the gospel, is actually greater than often thought. And I, and I wrote it that way for a specific reason, because we often think of the gospel like this. God loves the world. That's true. Sin is son. True. To bridge the gap between God and man. True. To forgive us of our sins. True. To give us hope beyond the grave. True. And when we die, we go to heaven. That's true. But... The gospel is much bigger than that. In fact, we studied it recently uh, just a couple weeks ago. So this will be underscoring some of the points we made earlier. But it's very important for us to understand that we ask the question, well, how does he work it all out for the good? Let me tell you, the gospel is much bigger than we often think. I want you to notice Mark chapter 1, verse 11. Because at this time, when we read, the father saying to Jesus at his baptism, he had, he had just come from his public Jewish ritual purification, known as kind of the mikvah, we call it, being baptized. And this voice comes from the cloud. Look at verse 11. It says, you are my beloved, can someone tell me, son, right? In whom I am well pleased. Look, that is a loaded, loaded categorization in the most immediate context, what the Heavenly Father is saying at that moment, and everybody is hearing it, is, look, this is, this is the King. The Son is the King. Psalm 2, kiss the foot of the King. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom, and of the increase of the government of peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward forever. Can everybody say amen to that, right? Okay, watch. So in the most immediate context, he's saying, look, this, this, look, everyone, Yeshua, Jesus, this is my son, but the son is the king, is the king. You're talking about the eternal one coming down, all right? The king has arrived, like the king, in the broader context of the father, giving this public ordination, putting his authority and DNA all over the son in this way, identifying Jesus as the king in the broader context, he is saying the emperor of Rome is not the king. The true king of the universe is Yeshua, the Lord Jesus. That's what is being said. And if you go down to verse 15, listen, he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, while the gospel would include the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, that's the heart of it, Jesus was calling for a radical change. When he says to repent, he is calling for a change of worldview. 
that the gospel good news was not a new era under a Roman emperor, which was the common view, but the good news is God himself is the new Davidic king who has come to bring a new world order in God's kingdom on planet earth. Therefore, this is the greatest turning point in the history of man. The son is here. The king is here. And what is the king doing? Oh, it's like, to the disciples, like, who is he? Oh, he's healing people. He's bringing wholeness. He's bringing shalom, which means wholeness and health and righteousness. Oh, like his miracles. Why did he do his miracles? Because he was concerned for people and they were suffering. But But it was also spoke of the bigger picture of what his kingdom would look like when he returns. A kingdom of righteousness and wholeness. Can I hear a big amen to that? Right? So you're talking about at this time when the father says, look, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You're talking about the greatest turning point in history. Yes, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the heart of it. But it's bigger than that. Meaning those things speak of the fact that in Jesus, he is making all things new in himself. And the Lord is building his kingdom by gathering citizens through the cross and resurrection. And this is important for us to understand as Americans. And let me tell you why. Because some of our founding fathers believed that the American Constitution would accomplish what Rome was unable to accomplish and what Jesus was unable to accomplish. They felt that America would bring a new world order Some of them quoted the Roman poet Virgil in his poem Novus Ordo, which, quote, they wrote a new order of the ages. They saw America as being kind of the hope of the world. That's what some of our founding fathers saw. They made the striking claim that history turned its vital corner not with Augustus Caesar, nor with Jesus of Nazareth, but with the birth of the Constitution of the United States. And while certainly our country is like the greatest country on planet Earth, and by the grace of God, we are here, and it's been a beacon of hope to the entire world, and as Bono said, the U2 front man, I had to work him in here somewhere, he said, America is the best idea the world has ever come up with, an idea bound up in justice and equality for all. It's like we live in an incredible country, right? And we, we left the, the kind of enslavement of thinking and process and systems of of King George of England pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But has our country taken that too far? I mean, we left George a long time ago, and it's like, on on a large scale, are we taking the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness too far? Like the U.S. Supreme Court reflected this when they wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence and meaning and and of the universe and of the mystery of the human life. So in other words, it's like you kind of make up the rules as you go and whatever you think is going to bring you liberty and freedom, just go for it. I mean, that's kind of what they're saying. Has self become the new sovereign in our country? Has the freedom of choice without limits, the new sacred, are we legalizing our own self-destruction? Why am I even asking all those questions? Because Jesus is the king. And, and what he builds will never break down. 
Our, our, our country, thank God for our country. But really it's about saving America, Americans, excuse me, not about saving America. There's one kingdom that's going to last forever, and that's the kingdom for which Jesus is the king. Can I hear a big amen to that? So it's like we ask, well, how do we know all things are working for the good? Hey, man, the, the, the king came. And, and through the cross and his resurrection, he's building a kingdom through the cross and through the re- resurrection, and he's changing people from the inside out, and one day everything is moving towards his reign. Here's the second point. How do we know it's all working out for the good? Number two, Jesus demonstrated through his resurrection, he's creating all things new in himself. And I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we made reference to this a couple weeks ago, but let's read this, 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see this. Look, there are forces in your life that are far greater than any other force. Like, like in school, if, if you went to a university about 40 years ago, they would say the major forces shaping humanity would be union in, in philosophy, meaning what's shaping your life is some subconscious that's been passed on from generation to generation. And uh, you really don't have any control of it. It's just passed on through the DNA. It's kind of a psychological residue. Okay, that, it's just garbage. That's a garbage idea. You have others who would say, well, the, the, the influence of shaping your life has to do with the chemicals in your body. And you're attracted to the individuals you're attracted to because of chemical reactions. You also don't have really any choice. Those are big ideas about what influences men. Look, in a believer's life, we have the same spirit in us that raised Jesus from the dead. We have resurrection power in us that is shaping our life. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at work. And we see here in basically verse 3 when it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again in third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5 and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. This is giving us just the heart of what the gospel is, which is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, never forget Jesus resurrected. It was a demonstration. Yes, he is who he claimed to be. But as we've said many times these last six weeks, and we're going to say in the weeks to come, it was also a demonstration that in himself he is creating all things new in himself. How do we know all things work together for the good? The king has come. And the Savior King gave his life on the cross, bore the sin of the world, three days later conquered the grave. Yes, proving he is who he claimed to be, but more demonstrating he's making all things new in himself. Can I hear a big amen to that? And just never underestimate the power of the resurrection, sharing with your friends. I, I remember as, as a freshman in college years ago, just, you know, a few years ago. Anyways, uh, as, as a student, I remember psychology professors mocked Jesus. I was shocked he was doing so. But he was basically saying Jesus was delusional. And he was saying, you know, it'd be the equivalent of saying there's a green monster outside. And someone who says that, it's like, oh, man, you know, he's struggling mentally. And, um, and I was just sitting there, like, shocked. I was shocked that he was talking like that. And I raised my hand. And I was just kind of like, wait a minute. You know, um, if someone said there was a green monster outside, 
yeah, we'd all think initially weird, but we opened the door and there was, well, they'd no longer be a wacko, they'd be a prophet. Jesus not only claimed great and radical things, he backed it up by his resurrection. And I remember when I said that, you know, and thank God, I, by the grace of God, I, I said that's actually a true story. I didn't embellish any of that. Um, um, that the professor was shocked, and his, he just, his face turned red, and he tried to backtrack. But just remember, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And, and you die still in your sins. The point is, Jesus resurrected. And there's no Jew who would embrace a Messiah in the first century unless there was overwhelming evidence of just that. Number three, check it out. How do we know he works it all for the good? We have the third point, I think. Thank you so much, you guys. Hey, look to Jesus, who even though despising the circumstances surrounding the cross, trusted the Father who worked all things out for the good. In fact, for the greatest good. And it's so worth, if you just turn on over to Hebrews real quick, I want you to see this. We studied this a couple weeks ago. But we know the Father works all things out for the good. Just look at the Lord Jesus, who though he despised the shame of the cross, which was the will of the Father, giving his life for the sins of the world, he despised those circumstances, trusted the Father, the Father worked it out more for the good, in fact, the greatest good. And I, and I want us just to read this again. I want to tie in a couple of points from last week. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, Looking to the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is telling us many things. Look up here for a second. Thank you. I know I'm going at a quick pace, but let me just say, look, let me just ask you, are you amidst some circumstances that are really challenging? Because we, we mentioned earlier that not everything in life is good. Flat out, it's not good. It's not good. And when Jesus was lifted up on the cross and all that surrounded, and this is such sacred ground for me even to make comments on this because I don't know exactly what's in his mind, but it's telling us he despised the shame of the cross. He's perfectly holy without sin, being lifted up like he's a criminal or something worse. It tells us in principle, you do not have to like your present circumstances. You can actually despise like what's going on in your life. You don't like it. You, you hate it. And, and it could be for a variety of reasons. You could be in pain. There could be terrible stress or shattered dreams or some injustice or abuse. I want us to return to a point a few weeks ago. It's critical like if that's you, and you're like, man, I'm in a crazy place at this time. You mentioned not all things are good. I'm having a hard time thinking how God works it for the good. Hold on, not all things are good. What's critical is, just like the Lord Jesus, when he was despising his present circumstances, he kept his eyes on the Heavenly Father and kept moving forward. He endured. 
And we made the point that we want to keep our eyes on our Lord Jesus, who kept his eyes on the Father. Remember, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the captain of our salvation. He endured the cross, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Watch, and as we like, okay, these circumstances are really lame, really lame. And maybe they're even unjust. The cross was unjust to a thousand degrees. I'm going to keep my eyes on the Heavenly Father. And I'm going to keep pedaling. I'm going to keep moving forward. Because as I do, that allows Him to train me in righteousness. Jesus makes us righteous. Can I hear a big amen to that? But let me tell you, the Father trains us. It's like Jesus came to do all that was necessary so we could receive His love and His forgiveness and hope be on the grave, all of that, all these great blessings. And then the Father, by the work of the Holy Spirit, is training us to grow in love and justice and faith, to not be overcome by the pain and overcome by the injustices that can morph into all kinds of crazy bitternesses and not only hurt our own lives, but future generations. Father wants us to keep moving forward. And let me tell you, this is very critical to the message. So if you haven't heard anything, hear this. What he's training you in. And this is, the, this is the great good. This is upper shelf good. It's better than the vacation. Believe me. No, it's like it's better than like created things. This is the upper shelf good. He is training us in such a way he's conforming us into the image of Jesus. That's what it's saying here in verse 29, and I'm jumping back to Romans. Just hear this. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. A lot of times, Romans 8, 28, is kind of trivialized. You know, he works all things out for the good, man. It's like, you know, I got a flat tire. and Okay, well, maybe he's going to work it all for the good. There will be like this killer sale on tires, you know. And it's just the perfect timing. We make that transition. Hey, you know what? Maybe the Lord blesses you in that way. It wouldn't surprise me. But, but actually... The good is not to make us um, happy or for us to have a convenient life. The good is to make us holy, like the Lord Jesus. And if that's not the goal, then our goals are not high enough. The, The benefit of that, and Father knows best, by the way, the benefit of being shaped and conformed to be more like the Lord Jesus is not only a rescue from ourselves, but it results in our lives becoming more influential to impact those who are around us to the greater good. The alternative is there's injustice, there's in pain, it leads to bitterness, it leads to this and that, it leads to a minimized life. I don't see through the reality of what's true. I start to self-manage. I try to control all the situations in my life and, and, my, and it just it wrecks havoc in my relationships and my own soul. Perfect love casts out all fear and the Lord is shaping us more like the Lord Jesus. Can I hear a big amen to that? That is a really good thing. There's not a greater reality than that. I mean, don't just see it like, oh, it's just like for some moral reason. Oh, it's much greater than that. Father knows best. Father knows best. And by the way, 
It's like earlier we said that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells us. Well, when did the resurrection take place? It took place after Jesus gave his life on the cross. So let me just say, our Father is so beautiful and so awesome. He capitalizes on pain, actually. He perfects his strength in weakness. So if you are going through a time, it's like, this is really terrible. And you know, you're just like reading, like all things work for the good. And Paul's saying, we know, and he's emphatic. How do you know? Because it's not all good. I can tell you that the Heavenly Father's working behind the scenes, and He's doing it. And He's shaping you, because His aim in your life is for you to be more like the Lord Jesus. That's a rescue from yourself and the pain and the injustices you're experiencing, and it's a rescue to those that you are around in your family in this generation. Our Father's plan is brilliant and beautiful. And know this, the Lord... He's working it out. It's like, how long? How long? How long is he going to work? How, how long is the work? Uh, he's working it. I know, but how long? I mean, 24 hours, 48 hours. He's working it. He's working it. Can I hear an amen? He's working it out. And he's working it either swiftly or slowly. I mean, if you go back in history, think of Dotham. Dotham was a place, I got to move through this pretty quick. Dotham is a place that Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery. That is betrayal. That's intentional wounding. It's like we all fail each other. But God forbid any of us betray each other. Because, you know, we're weak. We fail each other. But these brothers betrayed their little brother. Like, come here, little brother, let's go hang out in the desert. You know, it's like, whoop, boom. And it's, you know, Solomon into slavery. And you know the story about Joseph. Oh, my goodness, he's, he's, he's sold to Potiphar in Egypt. And through all these crazy processes, he's in, you know, he's ended up in jail and, and terrible injustice. And he interprets a dream that gets back to Pharaoh. It's, a, it's kind of a long story. He ends up second in command in Egypt. He ends up the savior of the world. He's a type of Christ, savior of Israel. But that was like year after year after ups and downs, a crazy process. But the Lord worked it all for the good in his own life and worked it all for the good in that generation. Hey, years later, same place. I mean, you have Elisha. He's surrounded by enemies. He calls upon the Lord and the Lord delivers him, striking his enemies with blindness on a drop of a dime. See, what's your point? My point is, is our father works slowly and he works swiftly, but he is at work. How do we know God works at all for the good? Point number four, he's given us his personal an intimate assurance by giving himself to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our life. And this cannot be underscored enough. This is so beautiful. This is so wonderful. Like, how do I know he's working out for the good? He gives us himself. And, and he literally comes and he indwells us by the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, has that taken place in your life? Has there been that transition? Because it doesn't take place by osmosis. It's like, it actually takes place by a formal, like opening the door, which is a metaphor, but it's like, I'm going to believe in the moment and receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he literally come and he takes residence in our life. It is a divine transaction. It's not merely psychological. Jesus said, a man must be born of the Spirit, not only see, but enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when that takes place, there's assurance I'm his child. It's like, I know, I know. 
And I have this incredible intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. He's my Abba. He's my Papa. But look, that transaction, if you've experienced that, and he wants everyone in this room to know that, that gives us assurance. I'm his kid. It moves. Listen, it moves my life from viewing the circumstances and the challenge from the view of fear which is so paralyzing to realizing there's a father in the room, in my life. Listen, if the Apostle Paul were here, he might say this to illustrate this. In fact, it's Romans 8.15, and I'm going to read it. He said, The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And it's like, just like if we could interview Paul and say, Paul, like, what do you mean by that? We did not receive a spirit of fear like a slave. Um, you know, we're Americans. We don't know much about slavery. And Paul would say, um, well, listen, when I pen that, I mean, you're talking about like, like, like thousands and thousands of people. I, I can't remember now. It's like a third of the Roman Empire, I think, were slaves or thereabouts. Like a lot of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. So what, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you a sense of what it's like to actually have right relationship with the Heavenly Father. It, it has no, it has, it's, it's not a slave type of mentality. What's a slave mentality? Slave mentality, well, a slave has no sense of well-being unless their performance is where it needs to be. They have, they have no sense of confidence in their master. Their master can turn on them at any time. And generally, their sense of well-being is based upon their performance. And, and he might say, okay, so let me just say to you Americans out there, let me just ask you a question. Um, hey, look, when you're feeling good and you're doing good and you're looking good, do you have a little, you know, a little uh, jump in your step? Are you feeling extra confident in things? And we might say, yeah, you know, like when other people are perceiving me well and I'm performing well at work and, and things and I'm doing well morally, then I have a greater sense of confidence that the Lord loves me and my life's going to be blessed. He would say this. This is what Paul would say. That's a slave mentality. What? Oh, <laughs> you're working for your sense of well-being. Can, can, I, can I push, Paul might say, can I push this a little further? You don't even live up to your own standards, much less God's. You don't want to base your sense of well-being and confidence in life based on your performance. The greater thing is, is the Holy Spirit indwells in you. You are a son and daughter of the King. And it has, it's not a slave mentality. It's the exact opposite. You have, listen, you have his love. Love? Oh, oh, yeah. And nothing can separate you from his love. No created thing once he indwells you. You can't even separate yourself from his love once you're a child of God. And what is his love? Listen, listen to this. His love is eternal. His love is present. It's, it, he is with you. His, his love is provisional. He promises to give us the grace we need no matter what our circumstances. Can I hear a big amen to that? His love is redemptive, which means he will take lemons and make lemonade. That is love. And you can't even separate yourself from those realities, which means He is always with you, present. It means He is providing for you. He's giving you the grace you need 
So keep moving forward. He's training you in righteousness and becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And his love is redemptive. It's redemptive. He's this genius on taking injury and and just using it to perfect his strength and to grow us and to take the lemons in our life and make lemonade. Can I hear a big amen to that? So it's like, my goodness gracious. If you go back to Romans, we don't have time to do it, but let me say, it's like Paul's writing, we know all things work together for the good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. Yeah, because the sun has come. Yeah, because the king came. And the king is at work. And the king is building his kingdom. Can I hear an amen to that? So true. And this king, oh, this king is the savior king. This king hung, bled, and died and gave his life, took the sin of the world, took all the breakdown upon himself, and then in his resurrection saying, I'm creating all things new. And I'm going to put the same spirit in you. And, it, and don't, I don't, never, ever think in a slave mentality. Chester Chuck Smith used to wake up in the morning and just go, I'm just wondering how the Lord's going to bless me today. Because it's, it's like, he's, it's, he's a boy of the Heavenly Father, and you are a child of, of the Heavenly Father as well. And keep your eyes, keep your eyes on Jesus who kept his eyes on the Heavenly Father, even though you've got crazy circumstances going on. You can, yeah, look, you don't have to like him. You can despise him. Jesus despised the shame of the cross, but he kept his eyes on the Heavenly Father. And oh my goodness, the Father's will did result in good. Resulted in the highest good. And I want you to know, the gospel is being played out in your life. What you see in Jesus, it's like, whoa, death, burial, resurrection. Yeah, yeah, death, burial, baptism, resurrection, work of the Spirit. It's like we are little billboards of the fact that the gospel, the genius plan of the Father is true. So how does he work it all for the good? I'm not going to repeat the outline that I just did. He does. And it's awesome. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the girls come on up. Father, thank you for you. Wow, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for... Thank you for your beautiful work. The best part is we're your sons and daughters. That's the best part. I want to thank you, Lord, for the healing that you brought to our hearts, the encouragement you brought to our hearts. I want to thank you for this. And and Lord, I want to thank you for every person in this room. You love with everything. To the extent you demonstrate it by giving your life, who would do such a thing unless it was just the total embodiment of love? You did it, Lord. We're in awe of you. And Lord, I just want to pray in these next few moments, if there is anyone here who has yet to open their heart to receive you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that that would take place because I know you're all about that, Lord. That's what you desire. That's what you are pursuing. And, and, you know, maybe you're thinking, okay, I heard that message and it makes sense and it's really encouraging, but, um, you know, the guy who wrote that, which was Paul, we know all things work together. He was so, like, emphatic and so confident. I, I, I don't know if I have that confidence. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that the Lord has taken residence in my life. You know, the Bible says, that these things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. Not hope it or think it, but know it. 
When the Lord does take residence in our life, it's so beautiful. It's a work of his grace, which means he gives us what we don't deserve. He's all about that. He just wants to bless us, but he is looking for permission. He will not force himself on us. He won't force us to heaven. He won't force us in right relationship. He won't He won't force his love. He won't. He's a perfect gentleman. And Jesus said he stands at the door and knocks. And if anyone would hear his voice and open the door, he would come in. You say, well, how how do I do that? How do I invite Christ to be my Savior and Lord? Well, first, recognize what he's done for you. He not only made you, but he's revealed himself to you. We've been talking about the gospel. He revealed himself to us at the cross where Jesus died for us, where he resurrected. And listen, He's reaching out to you. He loves you. Will you take his hand? Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. I mean, look, we, we, there's a choice at play. He set before us life, death, blessings and cursings. The Bible says, choose life. And it's a serious matter. It's almost like if we were, you know, caught in a riptide and the Lord is like dropping this lifeline. It'd be crazy to dismiss it. And we wouldn't if we really recognized our danger. Look, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. My friend, listen, the Lord loves you, but without Jesus, you're separate from him. In other words, like you you don't have right relationship and the hope that he so desires for you to have and he wants to give it to you. And it begins with right relationship with him. But presently, you, you may be separate from him. So he's reaching out. You say, well, how do I take his hand? Number two, you need to repent. The Bible says to repent or will perish means to change the way you think, kind of a, or even a U-turn in life, driving one way, turn around. I'm going to like go from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. Number three, receive him. He really is just a prayer away. Those who call upon him, the Bible says, shall be saved. And I would encourage you to do it, man, right now while you have opportunity. So I just want to say, while our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, please, just a private moment. I appreciate it as the pastor. How many of you would say, you know, Greg, I want in these next few moments to receive him as my Lord and Savior. And I just want to have a private moment with you. And if that's you, you would like to receive Christ, I want you to raise up your hand. And by raising up your hand, you'd be saying, yes. I want, I want that settled. I want to receive the Lord. I want to know for sure my sins are forgiven. If I were to die, I'd go to heaven. That's you. You raise up your hand. And I will pray. I'm going to pray actually lead you in a word of prayer, and it's a prayer to ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. So in the front, in the back, if you're someone thinking, man, that's me, and I want to I get this settled, you raise up your hand and let me pray with you. And I, I, you know, I just think of that man in the Bible who said, have mercy upon me, Lord, and the Lord did. And he really is just a prayer away. So I just want to make sure an invitation is being given here these last few moments, if there is anyone here who would like to receive Christ, just raise up your hand high so I can see it, and I'm going to lead you right where you're at in a word of prayer to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Lord, I want to pray if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray you draw them to yourself. Pray for those who in the last few weeks have opened their heart to you. We pray that you would continue. I know that great work in their life, growing them, blooming them, and... um, strengthening them as your sons and daughters. We thank you for this morning in Jesus' name.